This is the Rocky Mountain Review Podcast. I am your co-host, Gabe Peterson. And I'm your other co-host, Julia Badalese. This is the Rocky Mountain Review, the live news show that airs 4 to 5, Tuesday and Thursday, on KCSU that has turned into a podcast. And this is what you missed this week. Welcome back. This is Nate Block. I'm here with Professor David Wolfgang, who specializes in public discourse and media sociology. David is here to talk about the pressing issue of net neutrality. David, thank you for being with us today and for taking the time um, out of your busy schedule to meet with us. Would you mind starting off by explaining to our listeners exactly what it is that net neutrality is and you know what the impacts it has on um, users? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, so net neutrality is the basic idea is that... Uh, uh, internet service providers have to treat all internet access uh, equally or similarly, that they can't uh, prioritize or sorry, um, privilege certain content over others and that they have to uh, treat everything coming through their networks the same. And so it's been the, the policy of the FCC since 2015. And so for the past two years, we've kind of had this nice little uh, um, system that protects people's ability to get access to content um, similarly and uh, that they can't block or throttle or slow down certain companies' content or make companies pay more to get their content to go faster um, and uh, treat everything the same. Cool. So I was talking with you a little bit after um, class the other day about FCC's position in that. And how does that, how does the FCC's position maybe differ from private corporations like Xfinity and these other companies that want to profit? So what kind of, what is that relationship? So uh, internet service providers have to build out these networks, expensive systems to, to reach everybody with internet access, and they want to be able to make more money off of these systems. So that means maybe charging big broadband uh, companies like uh, Netflix, which takes up a ton of, of uh, internet service, um, to make them pay a little bit more so that they can e- uh, access their customers. So when we treat big operators differently, um, the FCC historically has been a little concerned that that's discriminatory. Uh, the current makeup of the FCC is to is a little more uh, laissez-faire, so they're kind of interested in giving power back to internet service providers to uh, let them kind of regulate how they might want to or how they prefer to. So, I mean, the FCC is a pseudo-political organization in a way because, like, as the political administration changes in the White House, the FCC changes. So we have a more conservative FCC right now, and. That means that they're interested in a little bit less regulation. So, um, when you say less regulation, I, I guess I get a little bit confused about that because wouldn't private corporations technically be regulating it if these new laws pass, so that there would be, in a way, a very consolidated regulation? Does that so make sense? What I mean by less regulation is less regulation over how private companies run their internet service um, provision. So Xfinity would, if this uh, proposal passes the FCC when they vote on December 14th, if it passes, the companies like Xfinity or Comcast can then um, make a lot more choices about how they want to charge companies to go faster on their, um, their networks. They can even slow down certain content as kind of like a, a shakedown to get other companies to pay more. And they can even block access to legal content. Um, I mean, if you're blocking access to legal content, most consumers will get angry enough that you'd think there'd be a consumer backlash. But if you think about it in hypothetical terms, like Xfinity is a part owner in Hulu, 
if they wanted to slow down Netflix to try and promote Hulu's content over it and get more money for their own pocketbooks, they could do that legally. Uh, as of right now, they could not legally do that under the law. Sure. Um, is there anything, you know, what are the, I guess, big picture ethical implications of this and how to, you know, what should the average person that doesn't maybe know a lot about this um, need to understand in, in terms of how it's going to affect their life? Well, sure. I mean, if uh, if Xfinity or other companies start charging certain big companies more to be able to get their content to move faster, you know, Netflix might pass that cost on to consumers. You know, if it's going to cost them more because of their high bandwidth, customers will pay more. Um, it also makes it difficult for startup companies to get a uh, some footing online. So if you're an entrepreneur online and you have to compete with companies that can pay to go faster and you're kept in the slow lane, um, it's hard to build a business around that model, especially when you're competing with giant corporations. Sure. So net neutrality is seen as a way to kind of build a level playing field for online startups, but also so the consumer can, uh, can equally access content. Right. So the ethical concern would be whether or not um, giant corporations have a, a leg up in trying to access consumers. Right. And for, you know, the average everyday person, maybe even like an average middle income family that doesn't, um, that wouldn't really seek the profitable benefits of this like Xfinity would, is there, is there any benefit on the opposite end for, for them, for this legislation in the past? So if we go back to the days of pre-net neutrality right. for the consumer. Right. Is there any value for the consumer? Well, if you're a consumer that maybe, um, what we're afraid might happen is we might get a tiered internet system, much like we have with cable. So if you're a, a light user of cable, you can buy a smaller package that means fewer services for a lower cost. We might see something like that with the internet, where you can only you can access certain websites or at certain speeds, and you might be willing to pay less for it because you're not a heavy consumer. But I think those would be maybe the only people who might get something out of it. But your average internet consumer or your heavy consumer is going to see potential price increases through other services and uh, difficulties getting access or equal access to certain um, websites that might not be willing to pay. Right. I guess I'm just curious, like, what what the sales pitch is for the legis legislation and then, like, how, you know, how they're able to, like, politically move that because... I would think that that's tough when they're like, well, actually, when they're actually explaining the logistics of what happens, they kind of got to, I don't know, hide in the shadows a little bit, you know? Well, the philosophical argument is that you're giving power back to private companies so that they can make decisions for themselves. And um, that is a popular conservative argument philosophically. And uh, Ajit Pai, he's the chair of the FCC right now. He's a very strong believer in, you know, giving power back to corporations. And he, I mean... The consumer's ability to be able to speak back and to challenge this is to send comments into the FCC on their website. And uh, I don't know how much good that's going to do when there is a political motivation behind uh, changing the rule right now. Sure. So um, to finish off, is there anything that you can leave listeners with um, in terms of what they can do to get involved? Well, I mean, you can go to FCC.gov and leave comments. There is a public comment period until December 14th when they vote. Uh, I hate to sound... Uh, pessimistic, but I don't, I don't see them as uh, not voting to get rid of it as of right now, because there are more conservative members of the FCC currently. So you can leave a comment, try to get your voice heard, but that's um, not futile, but not exactly a uh, strong goal. So Perfect. Well, thank you, David, for being with us today. And yeah, no problem.
For many students on campus, the rec center is a place to clear their minds and better themselves. But students could be soon seeing some changes around the rec center. I'm joined here today by Tyson Keller from the Student Rec Center to talk about their plans to build a new weight room. Tyson, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Good, good. So what can you tell us about this new weight room? Um, well, we've been in construction for most of this year on it, um, and it's uh, wrapping up to its final stages now. Uh, and then we just have to wait for the equipment, and it'll be ready to open first day of classes for the spring semester. All right, for the spring semester. Um, and what is your position on this project? Um, I'm over the project with the director of the Recreation Center overseeing just the day-to-day um, projects that are required for this um, area. Okay, so you just been kind of... Um, Checking to make sure everything's been going all right since day one. Yep, yeah. So we go through the construction management for CSU, and so they're actually the project lead on it, doing the actual construction. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, what kinds of equipment can we expect to see there? Uh, similar to what's in the current free weight room up on the second floor by the track, um, some of the new additions that we're excited about is this is the first time we are going to allow Olympic lifting. Um, so we will have three Olympic lifting platform stations. Uh, so that's going to be a new addition, which we've never allowed for safety reasons in the facility before. Okay, and what exactly is Olympic lifting? Olympic lifting is um, similar to what you see in the Olympics, where there's the, um, it's like the snatch, clean, jerk lift movement um it's easier to see if you look it up i guess but it's kind of just a barbell and you lift it up halfway and then you lift it up over your head oh, okay and it typically requires pretty heavy weights is, and that's why it hasn't been uh, used in the rec center before yeah and it's just a very technical uh it, like advanced exercise you need to make sure you're using um you know, following the proper procedures for safety and, and making sure that uh, you don't get injured yourself doing it. So we plan on working with our personal trainers for um, the first part of the spring semester and setting up some times where um, you know, students come in who aren't familiar with what Olympic lifting is to be able to come into a seminar and, and see how it's done so that they feel more comfortable being able to do the exercise. Okay. And so there will be a lot of more trainers in that area just to kind of help students figure out how to uh, use these weights? Yeah, initially there will be. Um, this. There will be, obviously, you know, similar to if you've been in the rec center, how we have um, rec assistants on the fitness floors. There will be a rec assistant that works in that area. Um, but this is more like the actual personal trainers that, you know, train uh, the students and the patrons. They'll actually set up hours where they can come in and show people how the exercise is done. Okay. Um, and then when we walk into the rec room, where exactly where will this weight room be? It'll be um, by the basketball courts. So if you walk into the rec center and you go through the turnstiles, um, and you come to the basketball courts and take a right, you'll pass, like, the uh, cycling studio, and then there's a doorway there that has an upstairs that goes to the mat room. It'll, right when you go through that door, that way it will be right there on the left, on the north side of the building. On the north side. Okay. Um, and what prompted uh, the reason to build this new weight room? 
Um, it was something that was noticed when the renovation was done back in, I believe, 2010 or 2011, that uh, we typically have plenty of cardio space, but the free weight room space was always jam-packed right from when the facility first reopened. And so it was kind of something that we noticed, um, but just didn't really have any area to do it. And then recently we were able to restructure some of our old storage areas, and that's when we were able to find room to be able to build this weight room. Okay. Um, how About how big of an area will this weight room cover? It's roughly uh, 3,000 square feet. So basically, if you're familiar with the rec center and the upstairs freeway area, it'll basically double that. Okay. All right. So this Roughly, will definitely yeah. help alleviate um, how many people are, I guess, using weights at one time. Yeah. I mean, if you come, you know, at some of the busy hours, sometimes you have to, you see three, four people in line for a bench press. And so hopefully this will help alleviate a lot of those issues. Okay. Was Were there kind of uh, preliminary studies looking at um, how often different equipment was used and um, kind of determining that, you know, there needs to be more space for more equipment? Yep. So our rec assistants walk around and do counts um, throughout, the, throughout the day in the facility. And so we analyzed the data from those counts to see, um, you know, where, what were the areas that were getting congested. And so looking, sifting through that data, that helped us come up with our calculations. Okay. Cool. Um, and can we expect any more additions to the rec center after this? Not anytime soon, I don't believe. Um, but, you know, as the university starts to grow and, grow and the population starts to grow, then, then in the next couple of years we'll start the conversations of adding on to the rec center to be able to accommodate the student body if it starts to grow to that level. Okay. And, we, and once again, we can ex expect to um, utilize this new weight room in spring 18? Yep. All right. Sounds good. Well, thank you for your time. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Thursday, November 30th, 2017, afternoon national newscast presented by 90.5 KSU Fort Collins. I'm Zach Trombetta. A Southern California man who hopes to prove the earth is flat by launching himself into the sky will have to wait as his mission's been canceled. Sherry Barkas of the USA Today reports Mad Mike Hughes, the self-taught rocket scientist, has put the experiment on hold. Hughes, a 61-year-old limo driver, has spent the last few years building a steam-powered motor home rocket launcher out of salvage parts in his garage and had hoped to launch his rocket on Saturday afternoon. In the YouTube announcement, Hughes said the U.S. Brew of Land Management told him that they would not allow him to do the event, at least not at that location in Amboy, California. Initially, he was told by BLM that it was up to the Federal Aviation Administration to approve the launch and says that the FAA told him, we honestly can't approve it. You just, just, we just know that you're going to do it here. As Hughes and his team were preparing to leave Wednesday, his motorhome rocket launcher unfortunately broke down in his driveway. Hughes encouraged every, everyone to stay tuned and check his YouTube page where he'll post updates. His plan is to try again next week. 
President Donald Trump revived some of his de- derogatory nickname uh, derogatory nickname for Senator Elizabeth Warren, referring to her as Pocahontas during an event honoring Native American veterans at the White House. Warren quickly responded to Donald Trump, saying, "This over and over thinking somehow he's going to shut me up with the Ali Vitali of the NBC News reports." Warren added, it's deeply unfortunate that the President of the United States cannot even make it through a ceremony honoring these heroes without having to throw in a racial slur. President Trump began using the Pocahontas slur to attack Warren during his 2016 campaign, and as President, Trump used the nickname during a speech at the National Rifle Association, as well as recently on Twitter. The White House responded saying it was ridiculous to consider Trump's Pocahontas jab as a racial slur. This has been your Thursday, November 30th, 2017 afternoon national newscast brought to you by Rocky Mountain Student Media. I'm Zach Trombetta. For more stories, visit collegian.com and ksufm.com. Stay tuned. In a few minutes, we'll hear about the unique world of roller derby here in the Fort Collins community and what the most common misconceptions of the sport are. The evolution of roller skating has created a unique sport that has found a permanent home here in Fort Collins. Colorado State University journalism senior Tyler Patterson has more on the local roller derby organization that has quietly become a FOCO favorite. The Fort Collins Roller Derby was founded back in 2006 and has since been a positive outlet for people of all backgrounds who are looking to exercise, express, and socialize themselves with other members of their community. I spoke with an organization coordinator, Megan Camisso, to discuss how the Roller Derby organization operates as a nonprofit here in Fort Collins. The way we run, for the most part, is off of skater dues. Um, So we support almost ourselves, and then we also have a couple partners in the community who are also nonprofit partners. Um, And with that, we try to partner up with at least one other nonprofit uh, per bout. Um, So we kind of support each other. And most of the money that we get to fund ourselves, like I said, is from our skaters ourselves, but also when we sell tickets at our bouts. Megan was also able to share insight into the process of becoming a new roller derby member. To join, we have a couple different new recruit meetings that go on throughout the year. Um, I believe our next one is January 3rd, and more details for that can be found on our website. Um, But yeah, you attend one skater kind of, I guess, initiation meeting, kind of get a feel for what's required of you if you are to join the league. And then two weeks later after that meeting, um, you're supposed to get all your gear in that time, and then you show up to new recruit practices. Uh, Our new recruit program, you can start with absolutely no skating experience, um, and then we'll teach you pretty much how to skate and all the skills necessary to play derby. For anyone looking to get involved with the Fort Collins Roller Derby, but not necessarily as a player, the organization offers other ways to help out. If you are interested in roller derby and want to be close to the community, you can ref for us, and that's a no-contact but skating position. Or there's also non-skating officials um, who are integral to the game of uh, roller derby. Um, and that requires no skating experience, but you still come to like the new recruit meetings that we have and you get information on that, and then pretty much um, we'll set you up with the right people to uh, learn how to do all the non-skating officiating. Megan also addressed some of the common misconceptions about the sport of roller derby. I think probably the biggest misconception we always come against is that, you know, we're down and dirty and we're throwing elbows and punching each other in the faces. Um, And while roller derby is a full contact sport, 
there are um, penalties and rules within the sport. So it's not just an all-out brawl on skates. Um, there is a lot of strategy and a lot of um, competitive gameplay that goes into every bout that we have. And it is a lot of fun, but it is very competitive. And um, some people do take it pretty seriously. And, um, yeah, it's just not ladies out there in fishnets punching each other. It's a real competitive sport that um, a lot of people put a lot of blood and sweat into. And so it's a lot of fun and very rewarding. And I think that's something that kind of gets passed under the radar when people think roller derby they just think ladies hitting each other the public opinion of roller derby has softened up in recent years and this has led to the creation of leagues and teams all around the state there's honestly leagues everywhere here in just the northern colorado area there's a league in boulder there's a league in greeley there's a handful of leagues in denver and the surrounding um, area there uh, pretty much every major city you go to there's probably a roller derby league so it's grown very, very quickly over the past couple of years. I was able to speak with a local Derby member, Whitney McMillan, who voiced her appreciation for the league and its members after years of commitment. Roller Derby is probably the best way to make lifelong friends that I've ever found. Um, I personally found Roller Derby at a, a very important point in my life, and I've heard that from a lot of other people as well. You meet people in this sport that you would never meet otherwise and um, there's people from every walk of life that I play with and some of them are my best friends now um, I would also say they're probably my I consider them more like family than I do my family they are always there for me we're all supportive of each other it, it's just it's a great community the people are definitely what make it the best for any additional information on the Fort Collins Roller Derby, their website can be found at focorollerderby.org or on Facebook at Foco Roller Derby. I'm Tyler Patterson signing off. That was our own Tyler Patterson there with the unique world of roller derby in Fort Collins. Coming up in the next few minutes, we'll hear about a new study that calls into questions the lethality of medical marijuana by reporting on the death of an infant with a post-mortem diagnosis of myocarditis. Stay tuned for that story and more. From a drug used to help patients that turned into a killer of an 11-month-year-old, or so we thought. Tad Perez is reporting about the pediatric death due to myocarditis after exposure to cannabis. Our own Tad Perez there with the troubling effects of marijuana exposure. On March 16, 2017, a case report titled Pediatric Death Due to Myocarditis After Exposure to Cannabis was published by Thomas M. Knapp and Christopher O. Hoyt. Thomas M. Knapp is a doctor at Denver Health and Hospital Authority, Rocky Mountain Poison and Drug Center, located in Denver, Colorado. Christopher O. Hoyt is a doctor at University of Colorado School of Medicine and Anschultz Medical Center, Department of Emergency Medicine, located in Aurora, Colorado. According to their case report, since marijuana legalization, pediatric exposures to cannabis have increased. Lab findings concluded that THC was found inside of the infant. Unfortunately, the route and timing of exposure to the cannabis are unknown. According to Daily News, titled, Doctor Who Wrote Study About Baby Boy Dying After Cannabis Exposure, Now Says Death Not Related to Marijuana, 
The doctor states, we are absolutely not saying that marijuana killed the child. According to the report, Autopsy findings in this patient were consistent with non-infectious myocarditis as a cause of death. The presence of THC metabolites in the patient's urine and serum, most likely secondary to ingestion, is the only uncovered risk factor in the etiology for his myocarditis. According to the Washington Post, Knapp defended the statement by saying that the word associated should not be interpreted as indicating a cause and effect. I was able to interview Kyle Grant, a UCCS psychology undergrad whose brother suffers from seizures. Before he took medical marijuana as therapy, he would get seizures about twice a month maybe, sometimes three. After asking about his brother's condition, I asked what he took for therapy and if the seizures decreased. He used to take THC pills or hash pills for two years. When he used to take them, it became about maybe like once every couple or few months, at the max twice a month again, but that was pretty rare. It wasn't a cure, it was more of a temporary route that my mother decided to take. I was able to send Kyle a copy of the case, as well as the response article to the doctor's remarks. This led me to getting his opinion on the articles. I've got a feeling that the case study was blaming medical marijuana, mostly, for the cause of the death, but after the news article that you sent me, I feel like that the doctors made a premature decision on the cause of the death, and I think that puts a bad look on the medical marijuana industry and possible alternative routes of therapy. My next interview is from Eric Hildenbrandt, an electrical engineer at School of Mines. My, my dad, he four years ago was diagnosed with cancer, and he uses THC and CBDs to help um, moderate the pain that he experiences sometimes. It also helps it helps him eat, um, gain, gain a little weight, because a lot of times cancer patients lose weight from chemotherapy. I myself, I don't smoke weed anymore, but every now and then, you know, my dad will offer me an edible, and I, I don't really think much of it. After learning a bit about his background of medical marijuana, I asked what his opinion of the articles were. Uh, interesting enough, there haven't been any, well, aside from this, maybe there haven't been any cases where uh, death has been caused from ingesting or smoking marijuana. You know, there's no overdose. I, I do feel like it's something that merits um, our attention, just because just it's good to know of pre-existing conditions, it's good to know of conditions, but also, like, being responsible, I don't think a kid that young should have had access to marijuana. Sometimes uh, some little kids will be given like tinctures because um, of seizures, so it helps reduce seizures, and that's actually that's very beneficial. This article, uh, I feel, I feel it's a lot of like uh, publicity and also policy. Um, you know, it is the first time that there has been a death associated with marijuana, but this might be just one rare occurrence. So, uh, it, also, it's like good to be aware of these things. You know, definitely. Different people experience different symptoms under the effects, and just so happens that one of the symptoms was death for this poor kid. As the Washington Post states, it's not based on reality. It's based on somebody kind of jumping the gun and making a conclusion, and scientifically, you can't do that. This proves that further research on the occurrence still needs to be looked at. For KCSU News, I'm Tad Perez.
That was our own Tad Perez there with the troubling effects of marijuana exposure in an 11-month-old diagnosed with myocarditis. This is the Rocky Mountain Review. with some unexpected surprises. Whether you find yourself with an unexpected pregnancy or STD, Alpha Center is available to support you and provide confidential testing. Located across from CSU on College Ave, Alpha Center is a Christian medical clinic providing education and services related to sexual health. You can call Alpha Center at 970-221-5121 to schedule your appointment with a medical professional. Hunger is a consistent struggle for many residents in Larimer County. As the problem of food scarcity continues to grow, the Larimer County Food Bank has struggled to keep up with the demand. Our own Max Aureliano talked with Paul Donnelly from the Food Bank and has more on the matter. For the Rocky Mountain Review, I'm Max Ariano. Paul Donnelly is the communications manager for the Food Bank of Laramie County, an organization that strives to provide food to all in need through community partnerships and hunger relief programs. Established in 1983, and um, essentially with the, the mission uh, to to provide food for all in Larimer County, uh, you know our vision is a, a hunger-free Larimer County, and so that's something we work toward every day. According to the Coloradoan, in 2015, the organization accounted for more than 10,000 households that accessed the nonprofit's food share program. Hunger affects everybody, so it could very well be one of your neighbors that we uh, that is a guest at our. upcoming university city and the issue of food scarcity doesn't seem very apparent at first glance but Donnelly begs to differ. Uh, just things like cost of food are rising and uh, 
in comparison, wages are not necessarily keeping pace. So people are paying more for goods and services, but they aren't necessarily making more money. And therefore, that may, for a lot of people, mean that they have to make tough decisions about what they'll pay for on a month-to-month basis. A really big thing that we see is uh, health issues. So whether you have insurance or don't have insurance, um, people get hurt. People get into car accidents. Uh, they're, they're unable to work, and therefore they're temporarily uh, unable to pay for the things that they might have been able to pay for just you know a week or a month ago. Although this issue is starving the homes of thousands in the city, the food bank for Laramie County is making goals to feed as much people as possible. According to their website, foodbanklaramie.org, They project to make 12.2 million meals by 2035, which is a 64% increase from 2015. We were constantly looking to kind of evolve uh, how we create access to to food for those who need it. So one way people can get food is to come to either our Fort Collins or our Loveland food share locations. Uh, That allows guests to shop uh, or to visit up to two times a week and to come in and basically get food that they need. Uh, Another way that we can we provide access to food is through our food link programs and that basically allows uh, about 85 of our community partners to come in and to shop our warehouse so that they can then take food and distribute it to the people that they serve. With the organization making strides to feed everyone in Fort Collins, Donnelly says that there's always ways in which the community can help as well. First thing you can do is you can visit our website which is foodbanklarimer.org. They can obviously volunteer. Another way that they can uh, they can participate is by doing food drives. The last way, and perhaps the most important way that they can help, is by donating. Although this issue is here to stay in the city of Fort Collins, the Food Bank for Laramie County will do everything it can to accomplish its goal of feeding everyone in the city. Our vision is a, a, a hunger-free Laramie County, and so that's something we work toward every day. Max Ariano, Rocky Mountain Review. That was Max Ariano with the story on food scarcity in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you'd like to get involved in helping the Food Bank for Larimer County provide food for the people of Fort Collins, please visit their website at foodbanklarimer.org. Welcome back to the Rocky Mountain Review. This is your Thursday afternoon local newscast brought to you by 90.5 KCSU. I'm Sam Bulkley. According to a new report by EcoCycle, Colorado's rate of recycling is at 12%, which is far below the national average of 34, reports KUNC. Director of the Colorado Public Interest Research Group, Danny Katz, states that 25 Colorado counties don't offer curbside recycling services and seven counties don't even have drop-off centers. Both nonprofit groups say local municipalities can improve their recycling programs in various ways, including working to ensure that people are not discouraged from recycling from additional fees or having carts picked up less often, and to track recycling, composting, and trash rates. Colorado State University's student government ratified their former vice president, Michael Wells, as the new president Wednesday night, reports Haley Candelario of the Collegian. This is following the recent impeachment of the elected student body president, Josh Silva. Cole Weiss, formerly chief of staff, was ratified as the new vice president. 
Wells and Weiss said that they would make an effort to restore relationships that were strained during the impeachment proceedings. In an interview with the Collegian, Wells said acknowledging the impeachment would help the organization move forward. According to Wells, changing the culture of the ASCSU will take significant effort, but he and Weiss intend to remain positive regardless of the issues they will endure. Colorado State University is working to get on track to reach their goal of 100% renewable energy by 2050, reports Julia Trowbridge of the Collegian. On January 5th earlier this year, President Tony Frank signed a climate reality pledge to commit CSU to running on 100% renewable electricity by 2030. In order to run on renewable electricity, the renewable energy must be obtained. CSU has put in requests for proposals for renewable energy in order to reach this renewable electricity goal. This has been your Thursday afternoon local newscast. For more information, visit collegian.com and kcsufm.com. This has been brought to you by Rocky Mountain Student Media. The Rocky Mountain Review is made possible by our news directors, Julia Batalise and Gabe Peterson, who provided us with ample editorial advice to create this program. Our reporting staff is Simon Jones, Max Ariano, Tyler Patterson, and Tad Perez. Our local newscaster is Sam Buckley, and our national newscaster is Zach Trombetta. Our board op is Cheyenne Duba, and our producer is Danny Steiner. Finally, our wonderful faculty advisor is Hannah Copeland, who also provided us with editorial advice and direction to make this program possible. For the Rocky Mountain Review, I'm Nate Block. Thanks for listening. And I'm Bernard Maxwell. Have a good night.